Hello, we're coming to you today. This is Saturday afternoon, a couple short hours after we decided to stop our public meetings for a short time. And Jim McClory, my faithful co-laborer, and I are the only ones in the building. He's recording, and he is dressed fully in a hazmat suit, and we are maintaining the proper social distance. And so today I want to allow this train to keep rolling on despite the changes in, that are happening throughout our nation and just carry on with our series that we have going on, We See Jesus, the commentary and study that we have in the book of Hebrews. And today's increment is increment 12, and it's called Hoi Apotes Italias which I'll give away the title. It means those who are from Italy. And it is from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 24. Our president, the president of the United States, has declared, and I think appropriately so, a national day of prayer for tomorrow, Sunday the 15th. And so we will open with prayer today and realize that we are lifting our voices in prayer with tens of millions of other Americans and people across the world in light of the present virus. So let's have a word of prayer, as we always do here in Tetelestai Phalanx, and we'll get cracking with Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus, Increment 12. Father, we thank you today for such a time as this, which is an opportunity for many of us and for perhaps all of us to consider a change of heart and change of mind in many areas of our lives, something the Bible calls repentance. And Father, what a time for our nation to come together in unity and to lay aside all bitter partisanship, not only on the part of our leaders, but also on the part of all Americans. And we thank you for this privilege to pray and intercede We pray for this present virus that has been unleashed upon the whole world, basically. We pray that you, who are in control of all things, and through your Son, who upholds all things, that you will stop the progress and certainly limit the damage caused by this virus. We know that you have permitted it in your perfect will. We ask that your grace will limit it in your perfect love. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity and for a faithful congregation who has continued for many years in the doctrine of the Word of God. Bless this message as it goes forth today, as we ask your blessing upon the leadership of our nation, our president and vice president, and all those especially whom he has tasked with special operations during this time in our country's history. And we pray for a special protection of the vulnerable among us, especially the aged and those who are already having conditions that would cause this disease to be much more virulent to them. We pray for their protection. Most of all, Father, we pray that you will be glorified during this time. Your people be mightily edified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our commentary on Hebrews, if you want to call it that, is like no other. And it's really a good time for believers 
perhaps if you've never been with us or just beginning to be with us, that it is a time to get in on the ground floor of a new study in the book of Hebrews. This is only our 12th time in it. And I say that this commentary, if you want to call it that, is like no other, not by way of boasting, but because as a congregation, we've come to this study having already studied with some thoroughness and intensity the Gospel of John, John's Apocalypse, also called the Revelation, and Paul's epistles, especially Romans. And these studies were followed by a study called Doing and Living Theology and the Doctrine of the Mystery. Our commentary on Hebrews cannot help but be colored by all these previous studies, and this is how it ought to be. And because of this, and all of these trains coming into the station, that is our study of Hebrews, it's going to be like no other Hebrews commentary. That doesn't mean that I will not be drawing on the research and have already of many other competent scholars in this study. On the contrary, I've been already gleaning from many commentaries, which in turn have hundreds of books in their bibliographies. Above all, our reliance is on the Holy Spirit, who is omnicompetent to portray Jesus to us so that we can see him, so that we can know him, and come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And by knowing that incomparable love to be filled up with all the fullness of God. One proposition which we've already looked at is that this epistle was sent to Jewish Christians living in or around Jerusalem in the years just prior to A.D. 70. And the destruction of that city and the temple by fire. Now, however, I want to introduce the theological functional specialty of dialectics into this study of Hebrews 2020. By that I mean that I'm going to introduce another theory about who the recipients of this document were. And it's a proposition that has much to recommend it. Dialectics in this case means that we can all consider both theories, both of these theories, and decide for ourselves which is most plausible. And however this pans out, that is, to whoever the original audience was, the message of the epistle and the sermon within it is solid gold. And it's profitable for us, a 21st century audience, and it's an audience right now in many ways. All scripture, not least Hebrews, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in God-approved livingness. And all scripture testifies of Jesus. As the angel in Revelation 19.10 said, the testimony of Jesus is the very essence of prophecy. It's been proposed and argued effectively by a scholar named William L. Lane that Hebrews was sent to a house church consisting of Jewish Christians in Rome. This should be an especially intriguing proposition to us, and I speak as a pastor of Tetelestai Church, 
because we've been fairly recently considering the greetings that Paul, the apostle, in the last chapter of Romans conveyed to certain hosts of house churches along with the groups that met in their homes. Among these were Prisca, P-R-I-S-K-A is a diminutive or nickname or shortened form of Priscilla and her husband Achilla and the church that met in their home. Paul's greeting to them goes like this in Romans 16, 3 through 5. Salute Prisca and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who laid down their neck to save my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Prisca, which again is an affectionate and familiar form of the name Priscilla, and Achilla were prominent leaders of the early church. That they were accustomed to persecution is revealed by Paul's reference to the fact that previously they had risked being beheaded. They laid their necks on the line for Paul's sake. And the theory of the epistle being sent to believers in Rome is strengthened by Hebrews 13.24b, where the pastor theologian, the author of Hebrews, sends greetings to his readers from, quote, those who are from Italy. This implies that the PT, pastor theologian, is with some Christians who are presently away from Italy and who are greeting some of their fellow countrymen back home, that is, in Italy. Lane also observes that house churches at the time generally consisted of 15 to 20 members. Imagine Hebrews, this epistle and the sermon within it, being addressed to 15 or 20 people initially. The most plausible date for the writing of Hebrews would be between A.D. 64 and 68. Between the fire of Rome and the death of Nero, who instituted a horrendous persecution of Christians. So much so that the best interpreters of the apocalypse of John identify Nero Caesar as the beast and as the man with the number 666. It is also observed under this proposal or theory forwarded by William Lane that the recipients of this sermon had already experienced some form of persecution. The edict of Emperor Claudius in A.D. 49, which was only lifted in 54 A.D., required the deportation of many Jews who, according to the official accusation, were rioting in Rome under the influence of some leader named Crestus, spelled C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, whom many historians identify as, in fact, Christus, or Jesus Christ. It's very reasonable to suppose that Hebrews 10, 32 to 34 is a reminiscence of that time. I'm looking now, and you may all turn, if you wish, to Hebrews 10, 32. It says, and all the way through verse 34, But recall the earlier days in which right after you were enlightened, you endured a struggle involving many sufferings, sometimes being exposed to public reproach and affliction, 
and at other times you were companions of those so treated. You also sympathized with those who had been put in prison and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you have a better and abiding possession. These earlier or former days, immediately following the kindling of their faith in Jesus, would accord with the kind of resistance that would come with the decree, just like the edict of Claudius in 49. If Hebrews was written and received by this audience in, say, A.D. 65, then they would be recalling events of some 16 years previous. And so the need for them now was not to discard their initial confidence and courage and boldness, but to add perseverance For the temptation that faced them was to faint, to give up, to rescind their confession of faith, and to retreat. It's conceivable that such a word of encouragement would have been sent to a house church, even the house church hosted by Prisca and Aquila in Rome in the mid-60s A.D., It is also imaginable that this word was meant for several of the house churches in Rome because of the PT's request that the readers salute all their leaders and all God's people in 1324b of Hebrews. Whatever the situation, they were certainly some within the fellowship who were tempted to simply quit and bow out of the Christian race. For this reason, the PT goes on to give a remarkable exhortation from 1035 of Hebrews all the way through 39. Consider 1035 and 36, for example. So don't throw away your confidence, he says, which has a great reward. For you have need of perseverance, so that upon accomplishing the will of God, you may receive what was promised. A prime exhortation in Hebrews, which we see early on in the epistle, urges the readers and the hearers of this sermon not to neglect so great a salvation. In fact, Hebrews 2.3, where that's found, doesn't tell the readers to do something to be saved. It tells them that we will not escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It tells them, moreover, that there is no other salvation to be had than that which was wrought through the once and for all self-sacrifice of the Son, God's Son. This great salvation is something that has already been accomplished for all of humanity with no particular regard to the free will of individuals. And this great salvation, as it's described in Hebrews 2, 3, telikautes soteria, is so great, so large, and so important a salvation that it is the accomplishment of the infinite love of God that is so immeasurably high, deep, wide, and broad that it surpasses knowing unless one transcends oneself. 
It goes way past what human beings in and by themselves can even perceive. Eye has never seen, ears have never heard, hearts have never imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It is not our will or our obedience, but the obedience of Christ that made him the author of everlasting salvation. Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 5.9. After he was perfected, he became responsible for everlasting, meaning having a beginning but no end, everlasting salvation of all who obey him. Just as Hebrews 1.16, which reveals that the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe, but not exclusively to those who believe, So here, everlasting salvation is to all those who obey the Son, as compared with John 3.36, but not exclusively for those who obey him. Because the so great salvation that was brought about in the Christ event has included all of humanity, who will all one day be obedient to him for every knee will bow and every tongue confess and give praise to him an act that cannot occur without faith and obedience now the non-thinking individual will say well then why believe now why obey now and the answer is twofold First, because believing we experience the life of the coming age now, the life of the future world, as it's called in Hebrews 2.5, now. And that's extraordinary. Secondly, because not obeying the Son, one remains under the wrath of God. As John 3.36 says, which we know, and any well-taught scriptural student knows, does not mean the threat of hell or of eternal damnation. But on the other hand, it does mean and carry some form of foreboding. Now, on top of those two reasons, a great reward is promised to those who persevere to the end. An evil heart of unbelief, as Hebrews 3.12 calls it, has very negative results. Even as continuing in faith has very positive ones. Sowing to the flesh results in a harvest of misery from the flesh. Just as sowing to the spirit, which includes Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Reaps a harvest of life that lasts into the coming age and into future worlds. In the case of people residing in Jerusalem in A.D. 70, for example. A.D. 70 is a year that would bring the whirlwind to be inherited by those who sowed to the wind. And who refused to obey the son whose voice was beckoning them to come outside the camp to him 
In the case of a house church of Jewish Christians in Rome, between A.D. 64, which is the year of the fire of Rome, and A.D. 68, the year of the death of Nero, the 666 of Revelation fame, one who recants on their confession of faith and hope in Christ, just to survive the displeasure of the beast, only incurs the displeasure of God. As the scripture says, and the writer quotes, but also slightly amends the Septuagint translation of Habakkuk 2.4. Now I say that the writer slightly amends Habakkuk 2.4, and he quotes 2.3 and 4 in Hebrews 10.37 and 38, as we will see, and alludes also to another passage, Isaiah 26.20, which was the final bit of encouragement that I received today in prayer to stop our public meetings for an undetermined period of time. Now, I say that the writer slightly amends this text of Habakkuk 2.4, but this may also represent another Greek text. There were more than one Greek text. There was more than one Greek text available to this writer as there was to Paul the Apostle. First of all, the PT, the pastor theologian, who wrote Hebrews, quotes the first clause of this verse, last. So that's an amendment. And then the last, first. The Habakkuk text reads, quote, if he draws back, my soul is having no pleasure in him. But the righteous one will live from, or literally, by my faithfulness. Appropriate to the course of his argument and exhortation, the PT writes then in Hebrews 10.38, Now my righteous one will live by faithfulness. After then inserting the connective conjunction chi, K-A-I, the PT then, uh, then quotes the first clause of the Habakkuk text. And I plan to spend a lot more time on these texts here in the future. The first clause of the Habakkuk text says, if he draws back, it sounds like a general talking about people retreating, beating a hasty retreat or deserting. If he draws back, then my soul, says the Lord, has no pleasure in him. And so, Appropriate to the course of this writer's argument, which he presents here in Hebrews 10.38, he then says, now my righteous one will live by faithfulness. After then inserting that connection, uh, the connective chi, then we have this translation, and I've developed it from the Greek text here. Hebrews 10.37 For, quote, yet in so little time, the coming one will come. Probably a reference to Jesus Christ, who's called the coming one throughout the Gospel of John and elsewhere. The coming one will come and will not delay. Verse 38, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back in fear, 
My soul is not pleased with him. Please notice draws back in fear. Now we are not of those, he concludes in verse 39, and I would conclude this also for Tetelestai Phalanx. We are not those who draw back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preservation of the soul. The picture here is not going forward to destruction in war, but going backward to destruction in desertion. Going forward results in the preservation of the soul and of the spiritual life into the future world, which God has designed to be ruled not by angels, but by mankind, humankind, Hebrews 2.5. First, and we're getting near a close here, And this is the verse that spoke so eloquently to me today, even today, Saturday the 14th, and gave momentum to my decision to stop public meetings for a while. It alludes to Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 20, which says, and this is the Bible in basic English, come my people into your secret places and let your doors be shut. Keep yourself safe for a short time till his wrath is over. This spoke volumes to me this morning for I've been praying for several hours and really several days about what to do about our attendance here in our assembly meetings. But in closing, I want to make a few points with reference to Hebrews 10.38 especially since half of this verse is also quoted by Paul, both in Romans 1.17, Hodikaios ek pistios zesetai, which means the righteous one will live by faithfulness. And he quotes a fraction of it in Galatians 3.11, Hodikaios ek pistios zesetai, or zesetai. In Romans 1.17, and then as we've seen throughout the entire epistle in our series called Reading Romans with the Light On, Paul presents a Christological or what we would call a messianic reading of the Habakkuk text. The righteous one who lives by faithfulness, in other words, is Christ himself who lives in the power of an indestructible resurrection life having been obedient to the death of the cross. So we've explored this in some detail in our study of Romans. On Galatians 3.11, or in that case, Paul doesn't use the verse in a directly Christological way, but only to contrast God-approved livingness by faith, and by a faith that works by love, as Galatians 5.6 says, contrasted with God-disapproved legalistic adherence to the letter of the law. Here the writer uses the text in a way that presents two ways to go for readers or hearers of his homily. And this is typical with Jewish Christian, with rabbinical, and with Old Testament teaching, the two ways to go. Moses himself said, I set before you two realities. Life and death. Choose life. 
This is exactly what's going on here in Hebrews. Two ways to go, as it were. And so, Paul doesn't use in Galatians a Christological interpretation of this verse. Neither does Hebrews, the Hebrews writer. Here, he presents the two ways to go for the readers or the hearers of his homily. And I think that applies as much to 21st century audience as it does the first century audience. The two ways, draw back with an evil heart of unbelief, incurring God's disfavor, which also includes disfavor at the judgment seat of Christ and fire devouring our works, or on the other side, faithfulness by a participation with Jesus Christ's fidelity by holding fast to one's original confession of faith in Jesus and in his accomplished redemption. The writer doesn't present a Christological reading of the Habakkuk text here because it is obviously unthinkable that Christ, as God's righteous one, would ever draw back from his mission and incur the Father's displeasure. In this case... If the readers are indeed a house church of Jewish Christians in Rome, they would have fresh memories of the famous fire of Rome for which Christians were wrongly blamed. Images of fire would be fresh in their mind's eye. The writer uses such images of fire not to cause them to fear the judgment of Rome ruled by Caesar, but the displeasure of our God, who was a consuming fire. The French theologian Ceslas Spike, in his recently republished three-volume study on all the references to agape in the New Testament, observed in so many words that even the most severe texts in Hebrews have love underlying them and he added and I agree if it didn't have love underlying them then it would not be classified as a Christian text so father we thank you for this text which is indeed a Christian text called the book of Hebrews a sermon by a pastor theologian anointed by the Holy Spirit for Christians in the time of the writing and for us in the present time of our history. Once again, we consider Isaiah 26:20, until a wrath passes by. And Father, we thank you for the purpose that you have in allowing this particular event in our history. It is a time for self-reflection, a time for believers to consider their ways, a time for us to pray a time not for bitter partisanship among Christians or among Americans or among peoples, but a time to look vertically to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, especially us who are studying Hebrews, which says, look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty on high, the right hand of God, his Father. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity, and we pray that you will allow it to be riveted into the hearts of the hearers to our great benefit and to our great spiritual momentum. In Jesus' name, amen.